2 Samuel 16. When David was a little past the top, behold, Zeba the servant of Mephibosheth met him with a couple of donkeys, saddled, and on them 200 loaves of bread, 100 clusters of raisins, 100 summer fruits, and a container of wine. The king said to Zeba, What do you mean by these? Zeba said, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, and the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine that those who are faint in the wilderness may drink. The king said, Where is your master's son? Zeba said to the king, Behold, he is staying in Jerusalem, for he said, Today the house of Israel will restore me the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Zeba, Behold, all that belongs to Mephibosheth is yours. Zeba said, I bow down. Let me find favour in your sight, my lord, O king. When King David came to Behurim, behold, a man of the family of Saul's house came out, whose name was Shimi, the son of Gera. He came out and cursed as he came. He cast stones at David and at all the servants of King David, and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. Shimi said, when he cursed, Be gone, be gone, you man of blood and wicked fellow. Yahweh has returned on you all the blood of Saul's house, in whose place you have reigned. Yahweh has delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom your son. Behold, you are caught by your own mischief, because you are a man of blood. Then Abishai the son of Zeruiah said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Please let me go over and chop off his head. <laughs> the king said, What have I to do with you, sons of Zeruiah? Because he curses, and because Yahweh has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my son who came out of my bowels seeks my life. How much more this Benjamite now? Leave him alone and let him curse, for Yahweh has invited him. It may be that Yahweh will look on the wrong done to me, and that Yahweh will repay me good for the cursing today. So David and his men went by the way, and Shimi went along on the hillside opposite him, and cursed as he went, threw stones at him and threw dust. The king and all the people who were with him came weary, and he refreshed himself there. Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel with him. When Hushai the Archite, David's friend, had come to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king! Long live the king! Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your kindness to your friend? Why didn't you go with your friend? Hushai said to Absalom, No, but whoever Yahweh and this people and all the men of Israel have chosen, I will be his and I will stay with him. Again, whom should I serve? Shouldn't I serve in the presence of his son? As I have served in the father's presence, so I will serve in your presence. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give your counsel, what shall we do? Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, that he has left to keep the house. Then all Israel will hear that you are abhorred by your father. Then the hands of all who are with you will be strong. So they spread a tent for Absalom on the top of his house, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. The counsel of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if a man inquired at the inner sanctuary of God. All the counsel of Ahithophel both was like this with David and with Absalom. Um, this is one of the more interesting chapters in David's life. 
because, um, in particular because of what happens with Shimi. We'll talk about him in just a minute. Um, the first person we meet in this chapter is Ziba, the steward. And Ziba was the servant of Mephibosheth, and we talked about him chapters ago. Mephibosheth was the grandson of King Saul, the son of Jonathan. He was lame in both feet, and David had invited him to his house, and he dined at the table of the king. When David left Jerusalem to go, Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth didn't go. But next thing, here comes Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, with donkeys and food and provisions. Now, boy, was that the provision of God at an unexpected time. To arrive with donkeys to ride, with food to eat and drink to drink, that was the Lord's provision. <laughs> and the Lord provides at the strangest times. He knows when we need things. And uh, David says to Ziba, where's Mephibosheth? And Ziba tells a lie. He says, oh, he wants to get his kingdom back. Well, it was a plain out lie, but David wasn't sure what to believe. And we're going to find out later that Mephibosheth didn't come on this escape because he figured with lame feet he was just going to slow the king down. So he stayed behind. Um, but he obviously didn't have a chance to tell David because in the rush of leaving, you know, you couldn't talk to everyone. So um, Mephibosheth has good motives. Zeba takes advantage of it and thinks, you know, I can get ahead here. And David says, you can have everything that was Mephibosheth's. He does get ahead for now. But through the process, David gets all these provisions, which is great. Then as they're going along, the next person they meet is Shimi. Now, Shimi is a descendant of Saul who seems particularly cranky with David. <laughs> and we don't know the full story of why he was cranky, but it may have had something to do with uh, he's a Benjamite and related to Saul. And um, normally when someone would become king, they would kill all the relatives of the, you know, the previous king David obviously didn't do that. So he is a surviving relative of King Saul, and he's cranky. And um, it makes complete sense that you would go chop his head off. <laughs> Not today you wouldn't, but you know in that time they would have. And you, you'll remember that when David was on the run for his life, and Saul was chasing him, and when David had a chance to get rid of Saul, he didn't do it. And his reason was, you know, a theological reason or like a spiritual reason, you know, I'm not going to touch the Lord's anointed, someone that God has chosen, I'm not going to touch them. So you'd think now that the roles are flipped, now that David is the person that the Lord has chosen, you'd think that the other guy shouldn't be touching him. But no, the other guy touches him. He throws rocks and throws mud and he curses. And Abishai, one of the sons of, Z of Zeruiah says, let's chop his head off. <laughs> he's, he's touched the Lord's anointed. He deserves to die. They, I think they just like killing people, these guys. But David says, and I think it's so interesting, he says, don't do it. He says, it may be that the Lord has called him to do this. And, um, but if not, the Lord can turn his curses into blessings. You see, David thought, like I said, very differently to everyone else. Now, apart from the event with, with Bathsheba, which was a complete flip on his character, that whole incident, he really did think like a, a genuine Christian, and he thought... He, it's a picture of Christ in so many ways. Like, you think of Christ, all the abuse and the sin of the world upon him and a man of sorrows, the things that Christ took upon him without anger. And um, here David, he, he doesn't retaliate. He just takes it upon him, upon himself. And he take, effectively, it's a picture of Christ taking upon him the curses of the world. And uh, so then... The next thing that happens is that uh, 
Absalom is in Jerusalem and he meets Hushai the Archite. So, you know, there's that encounter initially. And we're not going to find out what Hushai's advice is until the next chapter. But Ahithophel gives some initial advice. And Ahithophel says, you should go in and sleep with your father's concubines. Now, David had left behind 10 of these concubines to, like, look after the palace. And um, so concubines are, are one of those things that's clearly not in God's plan, but in the ancient times, it seems like all kings had them. And uh, even people that, you know, like King David had concubines. Some people kind of struggle to think, you know, how is it that, Abraham could have multiple wives and David could have concubines. And, and we, we struggle to think of how some of the best people in the Bible had situations, family situations that were so just clearly not biblical, right? <laughs> well, God, God was at work bringing us to the place where we are now. You gotta remember that the world was a completely dark and broken place at the time of Abraham's calling. So it's, it's, it's a bit like um, a principal I knew in the, at the school in Mount, the primary school in Mount Morgan. And um, the, the problems that were there in that community, um, when I was a pastor there, you know, there, some of the problems would, you just had to overlook because there were other problems that were worse. And so one of the problems that was there was swearing. Now, swearing was almost a part of just the regular English language. In fact, some of the, I'm almost certain that for them it wasn't swearing because some of the words, they must have heard them from the day they were born by their parents, used in every second sentence, so it was like regular vocabulary. So you may as well try to change someone's language. And, um, but when you first get there, the thing that really jars and gets you is all the swearing, and you think, I don't know if I can handle this. But then you soon realize that there are other problems that are worse, problems of the heart and the mind and things people would do, and those are the problems you have to solve first and you can worry about the language later. <laughs> and so God in his wisdom, he, he, he's in a world with Abraham and everything's just completely black. And he starts with one man and he puts the word of God into that one man and there's this process begins of enlightening the world and it really kicks in when Christ comes. But you can see, Jesus said to his disciples that there's much I have yet to say to you, but when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. And that's what the Holy Spirit does, is progressively the world is being reshaped and changed because the Spirit is guiding us into all truth. We have the Word of God, but you've got to remember David didn't have the Word of God. He only had first five, um, maybe six, seven books of the Bible. He would have had up to Joshua and, um, and Ruth and Judges, because yeah, Samuel wrote Judges and Ruth. So he would have had up to Ruth. But he doesn't have... Um, you know, all the wonderful teachings that we live by now. So the Lord knows that he doesn't know a lot of things. And so the, the Lord was aware that there was a process at work. The, there were many of the prophets hadn't come yet. There was no Isaiah and no Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and all the minor prophets. There wasn't Elisha and Elijah and King Hezekiah hadn't lived. Jesus hadn't come. So you've got to realize it's, it's very different. And so, the, yes, we look back and say, why did they have concubines? But no, we've got to just realize that the Lord was being patient and gracious because there was a process underway. So we, we just realize that it's the historical, the way things were in history at the time. And um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if in a 500 or 1,000 years from now, Christians look back on us and think, I can't believe they were so ungodly. They did A, B, and C. Didn't they know better? 
And uh, <laughs> the Lord's being patient with us too. You just, you better believe it. <laughs> and um, so we've got this situation where the, the concubines are left behind. Now, uh, the advice of Ahithophel to Absalom is go in and sleep with the 10 concubines. Now, this just sounds terrible. And there's so much to say about this, I'm going to try to be quick. First of all, when someone took the concubine of a king, it was, tr it was considered treasonous. It was like saying, I'm the king, because that's the king's possession. It was like taking something that belonged to the king for yourself, stealing from the king. But it's a, it was treasonous, but it was a bit like saying, I am now the king. And so these are the king's property. It's terrible to say that. Um, we realize today that people are not property. Um, but back then, it was a much different culture, and they looked at certain people as property. And so this was the king's property in their minds. So by him taking, by Absalom taking the king's property, by him sleeping with the concubines, he was basically saying, I'm the king. And he was telling everyone, I've made my father, I've just showed how terrible I am to my father, and now we cannot be reconciled after this. So it will strengthen his position as, you know, like, this is really what's happening. I'm really the king now. So I guess from a political point of view, from Ahithophel, it was great advice. From a spiritual point of view, it was not good advice um, because he was touching the Lord's anointed. Remember what uh, the, the advice that David had followed so carefully about not raising my hand against the king? Absalom has, doesn't think about it twice. And uh, Absalom is a picture of Lucifer. And so the spirit of Absalom must does not be in us at all. So what happens here is, is he, he goes into the ten concubines and this is where we've got a little bit of a, um, a miracle. A miracle on one hand, but a, a, a thorny theological question on the other hand. Here's the miracle. The miracle is that David had only just escaped out of the city 20 minutes earlier. And if Absalom had at that point bolted down the hill to catch him, they might have caught up with him, killed him and ended the war right then and there for once. But because of this... Um, so-called wonderful advice, it actually gives David a chance to get away. And David gets all the way to Jericho before they decide to do anything. Now Jericho is 40 kilometers away, it's a whole entire day's ride. And uh, now, what takes all day long? <laughs> well, it's the fact he has to sleep with 10 women. And um, so it's just, uh, it's, it's terrible on one hand, but on the other hand, it was, it was, it was a time, a time relief for David as well. Now here's the theological thorny question. What, what, um, what happened here was the fulfillment of the word that, that God gave to Nathan the prophet back in chapter 12. And God said, what you did in, talking to David about Bathsheba, what you did in secret um, is going to happen to you in broad daylight. That a friend is going to take your wives and do to them in broad daylight the thing that you did in secret. So this is actually a fulfillment of a prophetic word. Now here's the theological question. Why would God deliberately do this to these poor innocent women? Um, and uh, I... There's probably no answer that's going to satisfy the people that struggle the most with this question, if you know what I'm trying to say. But the thing that occurs to me here, here is 
because some people say, you know, why should these women have to suffer for David's sins? All right, and that's a good, that's a good point. But I think what we've got to do is come take one step back and think about sin itself. First of all, sin never only affects the individual who sins. Sin always affects other people, even if you don't think so. We know that the case with Adam and Eve, they sinned. Why should their sin affect the entire human race? It seems unfair, right? But it does. And that's the nature of not just the first sin, but of all sin. All sin has an effect bigger than you. Like, for example, your sins will no doubt have an effect on your children. It'll have an effect on your children's families, their wives, their husbands, your grandchildren. It'll have an effect, even if it's invisible, on people around you in your life right now, your, your wife, your work colleagues. You, you may sin, you may not tell anyone what it is, you may think it's something no one knows. Uh, you may have addictions or problems, but it creates an effect spiritually that changes you and affects other people. And this is what sin is. And this is one of the reasons why God hates it so much. Because the way the fabric of the world really is spiritually is that, it, that, that everything we do doesn't just affect us, it affects everyone around us. We're connected. And so it's not a case of God proclaiming something that's unfair because he just hated these women. Um, it's, it's a case of God declaring something that is because that's the way it was. When we sow, we reap in the area that we sow. And Jesus said this over and over and over. You know that if you sow, um, if you're greedy, you find that, that that has an effect on all your relationships around you where people will withhold from you. It affects other people so that they struggle with greediness as well when they're around you in relation to you. So it comes back on you more. What David has done, the exact same nature of it has come back on him. So I don't think the Lord has proclaimed this over David as a curse against these women. I think that's a misunderstanding of it. I think what's happened here is it's the nature of sin at work. And the nature of it is that it hurts other people. And that's one of the reasons why God hates it so much. God hates the fact that David's sin has affected these women. And it has affected not just them, but the entire nation of Israel. And what God is declaring is what's the consequence of it because there's a flow-on effect. If you knock over the first domino in a chain of dominoes, you say, it's not fair that that last domino should fall over. It didn't do anything. No, it didn't but the first domino got pushed. And if I was to say, if you push that first domino, that last domino will fall over, am I prophesying that because I hate the last domino or am I just declaring what's going to happen because I see how things are set up? And that's the way it is here for me too. There's different positions on, on God's sovereignty and God's free will and people argue about it. I think that God doesn't sovereignly step in to punish people in a situation like this. I think people do have free will to choose to obey the Lord, but the Lord also just knows because of his great wisdom, he knows how things will play out if we make wrong choices or good choices, and he lets us know. What we need to do is walk with the Lord and avoid evil. So um, David is fleeing for his life and the Lord is with him, but we are now seeing the outflowing of all the crazy events taking place. Heavenly Father, we thank you that, that in this world surrounded by sin, that there is one thing that's not affected. 
one thing that's remained solid, and that's Christ the Redeemer, Christ the Saviour. And I thank you, Lord, that, that Lord, you've forgiven David his sin, you, but you've forgiven us our sin too. And, Lord, we don't blame. We don't blame him, and we don't charge you with wrongdoing either. We, because, Lord, we, we acknowledge that, Lord, that we ourselves are the guilty ones. Lord, if anything comes against us, um, we acknowledge that we have also caused things to come against others, and we ask you to forgive. Forgive those who have sinned against us, and forgive us for our sins against heaven and earth. Lord, let your mercy reign upon us. May the people of God be mature and holy. In Jesus' name, amen.